Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone, Gabby here. And I'm Brenna. And welcome to the Mystery of Everything podcast. Hello everyone, Gabby here. And I'm Brenna. Oh wait, no, no I'm not. I'm Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome back to the Mystery of Everything podcast. Okay guys, this is another episode of the Deep Water Disasters series. And this week is a bit different because um, I'm joined by Steve because he literally stole his last podcast idea from me literally while I was writing it. So we decided to That was not an accident. I was writing it and I told you I was writing shipwrecks, submarines. And then you just stole the episode from me while I was writing it. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so we decided to share. We decided to share because if we didn't decide to share, probably would have been, you know, not pretty. So for this week's episode, I'll be continuing the submarine disasters episode that he did on History of Everything last week. So if you want to listen to two Russian submarine disaster stories, make sure to check out the History of Everything podcast. And I will say this, that if you are from the History of Everything podcast and you came over here to listen to this, like what we told you to do, then hey, first off, awesome. Thank you. Good job. That's great. Secondly, hey, awesome. You get to now listen to a bunch of mystery stuff and a bunch of horrible other things that happen underwater too on this channel. <laughs> So we're going to be looking at a few more submarine disasters and how they occurred. So last week, we saw two horrific accidents, with Kursk being the worst one. Those accidents, those disasters were relatively recent, though. And my first disaster that I want to talk about is of the USS Scorpion. Now, the USS Scorpion is a Skipjack-class attack submarine. The Skipjack class of submarines were a type of nuclear submarine used by the Navy from 1950 to basically the 90s. The class was named after the first sub of their type, the USS Skipjack. Nice name. Skipjack. Oh, Skipjack. some of these names were pretty interesting. I do enjoy their naming sense. They were cool. Uh, I think they did a great job. So they introduced the teardrop hull and the S5W reactor to U.S. nuclear submarines with the Skipjack class. Cool thing about the S5W is that it was known as the Advanced Submarine Fleet Reactor or ASFR. ASFR. And it was used on 98 U.S. nuclear submarines spanning eight classes. And it was used on the first British submarine, the HMS Dreadnought, which makes it the most used Navy reactor to date. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. I also find it interesting how the British named yet another thing the Dreadnought. I know. Because how many times are they going to name something the freaking Dreadnought? I feel like the U.S. has such interesting, like they got the Thresher, the Scorpion. I mean, it didn't end well for these, but... They had cool names and they just got, we got dread, not. That's it. (laughs) So these subs were the fastest nuclear subs until the introduction of the LA class in 1974. 
The USS Scorpion was laid down on the 20th of August, 1958, and it was launched in December 1959. The Scorpion took part in U.S. and NATO operations in the Atlantic and Mediterranean, and it played an important role in developing nuclear sub-war tactics. On February 15, 1968, the Scorpion was relaunched and it headed for the Mediterranean to work with the 6th Fleet, which is really cool. I didn't know what the 6th Fleet was. And there's like a whole website because it's a specific set of ships that just works in the Mediterranean and around that entire coast. And you can actually get like a list of all the ships and subs that work there. I don't know why they would post that online. I feel like that should be... I mean, it's no longer necessarily. I mean, the United States is the world police force. So, I mean, it has its stuff pretty much everywhere. Okay, that's fair. But the Scorpion was relaunched and it headed to the Mediterranean to work with Sixth Fleet after it was overhauled in Norfolk. So basically what what I learned over the course of this episode is while the subs would be completely commissioned and working, they'd bring them back to port and just routinely update them or do really intensive maintenance, which makes sense if you have... um, you know, machinery of this type, but it was a lot of refitting, redoing. Yeah, that that would stress me out though, because what if you just like put one screw in wrong? There's also a lifespan issue. So one of the things that ends up happening with subs and literally anything that has to go deeper underwater is that, you know, how they, from all the pressure and everything that they experience that they get compressed in upon. And yeah. then as they go up, they expand. So doing that over and over and over and over and over again, that weakens the metal. Well, not only that, but they have to make sure every single valve is working, every single torpedo, there's no leaks, thrusters, electrical problems. There's a lot. Oh, there is. There's a lot. And if one system goes down, well, I mean, we've already kind of seen what ends up happening. Also, for anyone that doesn't know what Sixth Fleet is, it's a part of the U.S. Navy that operates as part of the naval forces in Europe and Africa. They have a website. It's pretty cool. Check it out. So on May of 1968, the Scorpion's deployment ended, you know, just went out to the Mediterranean, got deployed, coming back towards Norfolk. And on May 21st, the Scorpion indicated her position to be about 50 miles south of the Azores, which is about 4,419 kilometers from Norfolk, which I Googled that. I might be wrong because there were like a few Azores. Yes, it's a a series of islands. That was the thing that was initially colonized. Like that was the first colony by the Portuguese, essentially. So the Azores that was owned by them, that was where the first sugar that was being developed for like actual sale in Europe. That's where that was coming from. And see, this is why you're here, because I would have (laughs) never freaking known that. I'd never (laughs) heard of it before that. (laughs) Yeah. So six days later, past her estimated arrival time, the Scorpion had not arrived yet. The search for the Scorpion started, but they had no luck. On June 5th, the craft and her crew were presumed lost, and on June 30th, they struck from the Navy list. The search for the Scorpion still continued, however. Typically, you don't want an advanced submarine missing, as it could, like, it can get into the wrong hands. Oh, yeah. But also, it's important to note that at this point, they didn't know if it was sunk or captured by the wrong people. Yeah, because we're talking about the Cold War, meaning that literally anything could have happened if by some hostile power or potential terrorist force. You never know. But also, it's important to note that they at this point didn't even know if the craft was already captured by the wrong people. Oh, right, because it was like like the Cold War, which meant that it could be literally anything with the Soviets or anything like that. Yeah, basically. So by the end of October, months after the Scorpion had initially disappeared, the Mizar, which was a Navy oceanographic research ship, located sections of the Scorpion's hull in more than 10,000 feet of water, about 400 miles southwest of the Azores. 
This led to other ships being deployed to the area to look into it, and a submersible Trieste was sent out to the area. In addition, submersible Alvin also surveyed the wreck site in 1986. And I'll have pictures uploaded to Instagram for you all as well, because, you know, these submersibles, they went back out there just to see what happened, just to do a little sneaking around. Just a little sneaking around. <laughs> I mean, what else are they supposed yeah, fair, to do? Fair. That's exactly they what probably wanted to see, you know, if they could find any new clues. That's what I'm assuming. Okay. So I told you all that it disappeared and clearly wrecked. But how? What happened that caused USS Scorpion to end up 10,000 feet at the bottom of the ocean? Well, the last transmission that was received from the Scorpion was on May 21st. This submarine had a standing order that called for a burst transmission every 24 hours. This report was four words long and said, check report. And when decrypted, it simply meant check 24 submarine Scorpion. What this meant was situation normal, proceeding as planned, and they had to send this, you know, just so that no one was worried. However, on May 22nd, no such transmission was received, and the radioman's second class, Mike Hannon, who was responsible for processing messages from submarines at sea each day, was starting to get worried. So basically, every submarine would, like, they would radio in to this specific location. Um, I forgot the name of it, but it comes up later on in here. And they would decrypt these messages and pass them on to their superiors. And this is just like the hub, the communication hub of all of their like underwater or even like naval affairs in general. Anyway, this radio man checked in with his superiors to see if any other word of the submarine had been received, but no one had heard anything. And this was the first hint that something was wrong. The radio men in charge of handling all comms from the subs were, of course, always aware of changes in plans and secret operations. And oddly enough, the Scorpion was initially ordered to sail straight home from the Mediterranean to Norfolk. But on May 17th, it was ordered to sail 1,000 miles southwest off the coast of Africa to the Canary Islands. That's a big diversion. Can you guess why? Uh, Soviets. Yeah. Yeah. So this was due to a Soviet Novi operation that the U.S. wanted to check out. So obviously when the sub didn't return at its expected time on May 27th, it became national news. To make things worse, you know how military wives go to meet their husbands as they get back from deployment? Oh, yeah. Well, they were all gathered outside in the rain waiting for their husbands to return. And even the day they were supposed to return, like the people at the base, they didn't seem particularly worried. Like that's not what, you know, anyone got from them. But they knew that the sub was missing and they just didn't well, say anything? Well, when the return time came and went and they heard nothing from the sub, the mood shifted because they couldn't let on that they knew when it went missing. And you'll see later on in the episode, like it was very, like nobody actually gave an accurate account of the event. So it's all very murky. Oh. So at 2.15 PM, every long range patrol aircraft was sent out to search for this submarine. The waiting families were sent home and they didn't even know anything was wrong at this point. They were just told they hadn't heard from them and it was probably due to bad weather. And y'all, if you want to look into the stories of the families of the Scorpion crew, it was so sad. It had me almost in tears. The bad thing is we don't really know what happened to the Scorpion or even the exact events leading up to its appearance. We do, up to its disappearance, sorry. We do know that admirals and people working at the Come Sublent Center tried to cover up the exact order of events leading to the disappearance by not revealing everything that they knew especially not the part about spying on the Soviets. Oh, man. Bad optics. Oh, speaking of action, I did actually figure out the amount in here. The whole thing about death and what happens. Yeah. So it's called the death gratuity. 
right? So, so they do get paid. They do. The death gratuity program provides for a special tax-free payment of $100,000 to eligible survivors of members of the armed forces. Only 100000 who, who die while on active duty or while serving in certain reserve statuses. The death gratuity is the same regardless of the cause of death. So they'll get it. It could even be that someone is on active duty and ends up dying of like illness rather than in combat or something could potentially happen. But either way, that's what they get. Yeah, and but I'm not 100, sure if that 000... means that's just the spouse or it can also go to children as well. But here. that's not even enough to buy a house. Well, yeah. With inflation. Maybe back in the day it would have been a baller amount of money. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, what ends up happening, you also have to remember what was the average pay for a soldier, like for the lower ranks? I don't know. Low. I've never gone anywhere within an inch of mile, 10 miles. I've never been around the military. Let's see. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Military. My family is new to this country, so. All right, let's see. Let's see. If you just enlist as a private, right? If you were an E1. uh, Let's see, where is it? E. There it is, E1. You have a base pay per year of $23,000. But they got benefits. Yes, you get benefits and other stuff in here. But also you remember that even with 23, that pay, that, that's their pay and tax and stuff still gets taken oh, out. Oh, but they also don't have to pay rent, right? Because they Correct. can live. Exactly. So you have all the stuff with base and everything else. It's not good. But I mean, if that's just, just if your If you don't have to pay rent, that's amazing. No wonder they're buying Camaros all the time. Oh, my God. No, that's for a complete. That's, those usually come from bonuses that they'll get. Like when no they're wonder <laughs> they're getting Camaros. Very bad uses of money. But <laughs> So you have to think. If they get 100000 and you're a private and you just got married or something else like that here before and then you die, like, yeah, obviously it, it sucks for them, of course. But that's four years worth of pay that you get up front. Hmm. Solid. Okay. So, anywho, back to the story. Yes, of course. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Thank you for your little um, added info. I was curious. So, oddly enough. John Walker, the supervisor on duty at the comm center the night the Scorpion disappeared, he ended up pleading guilty to spying for the Soviets. Wait, what? Selling top secret materials that allowed them to decrypt submarine communications in 1985. Oh my gosh, I wrote this and I read that and I was shocked too. (laughs) I was like, damn, I forgot. (laughs) But yeah, so the guy in charge of the comm center, shady shit. Like, guys, this whole thing was... It was I something. What I did that episode on YouTube about Aldrich Ames and like the, the, the guy who worked for the CIA, CIA whose job was to hunt down Soviet spies. And, and he was the yeah, Soviet, Soviet spy. And they were like, wow, this guy has a lot of money. That's so weird because we all work here. We got paid the same, but he has a mansion. Huh? Yeah. Oh, well. On like $80,000 pay per year, he managed to buy a $650,000 home cash. Yeah. And that was back in the day. Holy moly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, there are a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding the sinking of the scorpion. In 2018, there was an interview with radio man Hannon and Larbs. And you can remember Hannon, he was the guy who was like, hey, I'm worried. Um, who said that the senior officers had already known that the scorpion was lost. And again, guys, these are conspiracy theories. There are a million books with all having different theories. But they claim they're all correct. So Wait, didn't they kind of know that the scorpion was lost when it was lost and they just didn't tell anyone? Well, again, take all of these with a grain of salt. They assumed if a submarine goes missing, yeah, it's probably lost. But they're saying they 100% knew it was lost. Oh. They said that the Navy's sound surveillance system had tracked the sub sinking and the explosion. And they had also tracked a Soviet sub leaving the area at a high rate of speed. However, there are no official reports that have ever given this account any validity or verification. Yeah, and honestly, if it was the 1980s and they had confirmation of a Soviet attack on a submarine, if something like that had happened, that would have been, I mean, there would have been an escalation of some kind. I mean, it's, it's, it would be literally the 80s. My big thing is why would two radio men come forward years later? Years later, this happened in the 60s. Why would they come forward in 2018 and lie? That's... Why I was like, hmm, but you know, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't know. Because obviously I know that the event happened earlier there, but I'm just, I'm trying to think about what would potentially happen. Either some people that are potentially trying to like, trying to take a and make a name for themselves, or it could be something as simple as they are misremembering things or conflating things that are kind of related and insinuating worse details that come from it. Well, they said, because I was reading a lot of accounts, these two men were also talking about how one of the nights when pretty early on when the ship was missing, like the first night it didn't send communications. Yes. All of these higher level military men, like admirals, were in the comm room trying to figure out what was going on, like panicking. Um, and they never talked about that because in part of their cover up, they said they didn't know anything was weird until it failed to show up. So, mm. but a lot of people on Bay, like at the center were like, hey, they were in here panicking over it like the day it went missing. So again, a lot of conflicting stories. And obviously the Navy's not going to be like, hey, guess what happened? Funny story. Oh yeah, especially not when you have all the families back there that are going to be raising hell about the entire situation. Who are only going to get apparently $100,000. And that's today. They probably got like $50,000. They're like, good luck, Chuck. Figure it out. Actually, that's a good question. Didn't actually look up what it was at the time. That's just what it is today. You're right. So another theory as to the loss is a warhead explosion. There are people who have theories as to faulty overheating batteries causing these warheads to explode. However, every compartment of the sub wreckage was essentially crushed by external pressure, which means the torpedo room was probably already flooded when the submarine sank. If a battery fire had started a warhead, like the blast may not have caused other warheads to blow up. It may have blown off the hatches, which flooded the torpedo room, which would have caused the bulkheads to crumple until the ship was torn apart. Oof, which, that does not sound pleasant at all. I know. 
And there are many theories out there, but none of them are accepted by the Navy or even given much weight by their accounts. There are countless books, all listing for sure that they know without a doubt what happened. The unfortunate fact of the matter is we may never know what happened to cause the USS Scorpion to sink and all 99 of its crew members to be lost. And it's still one of the great mysteries of the Navy. Funny thing, though, with this wreckage, the whole battery explosion. So there was one case, like when I was looking into it, and I hope I remember this correctly because I did not write it down. That was my bad. Um, they were saying that some part of the electrical, I think it was the battery, it was recalled on all of the submarines. No. But they, no one is going to, you know, verify. No going to just admit that or try to verify. Exactly. Yeah, so do we don't know if this submarine was outfitted with that faulty recalled piece of equipment. And that could have also led to it. Honestly, there's no way to know. And that's the thing. That's the thing with these accidents. Once it's sank, once it's gone, once it's exploded, once it's collapsed, we'd never be able to know. Like, No, it's like what we talked about in the previous episode with the Russian one and the LOKH system. The fact that it was a new automatic system that was implemented. And so the two explanations are either human error or machine error, which obviously, yeah, those are the two answers. But literally one of the, like, the official statement from Russia was, oh yeah, no, this, this sailor was totally screwing around with the system and hitting knobs and that caused it. And others are like, oh no, the system was new and it had a whole bunch of faults and problems that were giving false readings. So, but the, they're not gonna wanna give, like admit that their brand new state-of-the-art equipment, the, the best of the best is actually faulty. Well, the thing is, it had just come back from maintenance. So I would assume if there was an active recall, because remember before it went to the Mediterranean, it was in port. Yeah, through refilling. I'd yeah. assume they would have replaced faulty equipment, one would hope. Yeah, unless there's some kind of Unless time it slipped crunch, through the cracks. But then, I mean, yeah. So it's just, it's one of those unfortunate circumstances where it's, it's a mystery. I don't know. So our next story involves another American submarine the USS Thresher. The Thresher sank almost 60 years ago in April of 1963. It was the first nuclear... It did sank 60 years ago, right? Dang. No, well, I mean, it's 2024 Well, it's 2024 now, now yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it, when, we're, when we're talking about when the research for all this stuff is coming out, it's probably like 2023 when you're looking at it. It was the first nuclear-powered submarine in the world to be lost at sea. And again, this is one of those instances where we don't really know what for sure happened. The Thresher was the first of a new class of nuclear subs. It combined the attack submarine features to make a new hunter killer craft. Now, that is pretty interesting. The following specs are all obtained from the U.S. Naval Institute article on her. According to this, the craft had a cigar-shaped hull for optimized underwater performance. It also had BQQ-2 sonar, which was at the time the most advanced sonar ever fitted to a submarine. The torpedoes on board the Thresher were aft of the sonar, so behind of, like towards the back of the sonar. It was arranged on each side, angled out at 10 degrees from the center. She was also later fitted to fire anti-submarine rockets as well, and these were a combination of rockets and torpedoes. This meant that it was launched like a torpedo, it like streaked to the surface, it left the water, and then it plunged back into the water several miles from the Thresher, where it would detonate. I yep. thought that was really that is cool. Some awesome stuff. Because I mean, have you seen what happens with the javelin and like how the javelin fires for the anti-tank weapon? No, but I have played World of Warships and I feel okay. like that would be so useful. So I want you to imagine this. And this is my favorite thing about the javelin because it's such a complex system, right? It's so much more expensive. Like we're talking 10, 20, 30 times more expensive 
than firing a simple like RPG, like one of the rocket propelled grenades. You know how you fire one of those and it goes pew in an arc, basically. Does it make that sound just go pew? Yes, basically. Uh, It does. But the javelin goes pew and then it fires straight up. Wow, the sound effects is like you're painting a very accurate picture. This this isn't anything that's being put in here by like our editor or anything. No, 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 no. This is is all natural (laughs) sounds that I'm making. This is the day off you've been waiting for. You don't need any sound effects. I (laughs) got you. So it it fires, right? And then it activates its thrusters. It fires up into the air. The entire time it has a tracking computer in it that has locked onto a tank. So then it goes over top angles down and then goes directly on top of and explodes immediately over the tanks like top and the reason it does that is because the top of the tank has the thinnest armor so in the case of like a submarine or something like that if you're going to be going after it rather than putting it underwater where there's a lot of resistance or stuff that can get in the way fire goes in the air travels freely much faster than underwater boom no way to dodge dead nope okay so this sub also had an S5W reactor, again, which gave her unlimited range and she was able to dive 1,300 feet, which was unprecedented for an American submarine. I'm sure other countries probably could do that because when I was doing my research, they really, really were specific about it being an American submarine, like yeah, four one. And they were always competing. Remember, this wasn't just a nuclear arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. They were competing in basically everything. So like fighter the craft, occult, subcraft, psychics. Everything. Yeah, all of it. Which is so funny because the Soviets were very anti, you know, religious, basically. So they tried to make all sorts of that um, psychic mysticism as scientific as possible. And then yeah. the U.S. was like, hold on, <laughs> wait a minute. What if they figure it out? Mm. Ugh, Cold War was a trip. Oh, there was the whole thing. I remember they had like scientific socialism. Like one of the big things that in the early days of the Soviet Union was, I, I kid you not, for anyone that is listening to this, there was a genuine idea of crops that are of a similar type, like wheat. They're not going to compete with other wheat because they have the same class, like in a class warfare, like class society, right? So they wanted to plant as many plants, like with close cropping, as close together as possible. And the idea of it was more abundant yields. Naturally, what ended up happening is that the wheat ended up strangling the other wheat because their roots would become... Too close together. They'd compete. They'd all compete with each other. And they would artificially create famines from doing this because they wanted to implement socialism in science. Um, I mean, that is an interesting way to do that. There's other things they could have done. Anything yeah. else. Yeah. Really? <laughs> but uh, who am I to judge? <laughs> the work of some scientists. <laughs> so <laughs> the Thrasher was commissioned on the 3rd of August, 1961. And at her ceremony, it was said that the Thrasher is not just another ship. Thrasher is totally different. It's giving real the Titanic is unsinkable vibes. Like it's when I read that, totally I was like. totally different. It has a nuclear bomb. I'd say bomb, a reactor inside of it. that could go nuclear if it explodes. Anyway, it's totally different. That was the quote, though. So I'm like, did he use the word totally different? I don't know. I wasn't there. So after the Thresher was commissioned, it under- underwent a lengthy series of trials in the Atlantic. However, they did have some issues during these trials. The Thresher at one point had issues with its diesel generator, as well as issues with restarting its nuclear reactor. During shock tests, the Thresher faced the most intense tests than any other submarine that the Navy had tested before. These tests were reported to have caused minor damage to the ship, 
but it was able to be repaired and none of it damaged its ability to operate. In fact, they were able to, you know, fix it up with stuff that they had on board with them. So it wasn't that bad at all. Yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. After testing, Thrasher returned to the Portsmouth shipyard for what was said to be major maintenance work. At the end of this work, the ship was thoroughly cleaned and tested. And I read that it was so thoroughly tested that at one point they anchored it and then they tested its thrusters by having it just like move forward to see what it could do. That's how intense it was. Everything that could be tested was and emergency drills were carried out. On April 9th, 1963, the Thrasher was underway with 129 men, 12 officers and 96 enlisted men making up her crew. Honestly, that just seems completely reasonable, especially when you're going to test something like that. It's a state-of-the-art new piece of equipment. This thing is expensive. You do not want anything to happen to it. Obviously, we do know that something ends up happening to it, but they're trying to do everything that they can to prevent that in the first place. Also, it did undergo um, a change in command. So the commander that it launched with, the commander that it was with before it went in for maintenance, He got re-stationed somewhere else, even though he really wanted to be there, you know, with it. He'd like that ship. A man by the name of Harvey, Commander Harvey, he's the one who took over command of that ship. And the interesting thing about it, and I feel so bad because, you know, he died on the submarine. He was just really smart and really lucky. So he went on this game show and he was so much better than all of the other people on the show that he won oh. a lot of stuff. Like he was super lucky. I think I told you about him when I was researching. I didn't include much about him here, but he had like two kids, I think, and a wife. And he won them all of this stuff on this game show because he was just that smart and Damn. that good. Um, so very sad stuff. Anyway, the submarine... Upon its launch, it met up with the USS Skylark, which was a submarine rescue ship that was to accompany it on its trials. The crew of the Skylark had divers and equipment specialized for potential use in rescuing a submarine crew, including a cable-lowered rescue chamber, which had only been used once before to rescue the crew of the USS Squalus. Which, when I read about this, I was like, hey, I gotta include that, so I will tell you about the... Submarine rescue. I mean, if you're talking about underwater disasters, then yes, of course, naturally, I would fully expect that to be the case. So I'll tell you about the submarine rescue later on in this episode. But the ship and the submarine were able to communicate via an underwater telephone, which was called the UQC. The Thresher made its first dive to test equipment, and this one was successful. So then they, of course, decided, hey, let's head out further for deep water tests. Yay! Um, On April 10th at 6.35 a.m., Commander Harvey, the man in charge of the Thresher, announced that he was taking her down to her maximum operating depth, which was recorded as 1,300 feet. And this, at this point in its career, had been done about 40 times before. So, I mean, it was completely standard at that point. That wasn't just new. They weren't just testing it. That was like, okay, this is a routine test. This is a thing that we always normally do. So, I mean, it's no big deal. Especially since it went through one of like some of the most intense stress tests and was completely fine. Of course, this was just like, it was probably just a no brainer. It was just regular Tuesday. So at 747, the Thresher reported that they were beginning their dive. At 752, they reported being at 400 feet and they were checking for leaks. At 809, they reported being at one half test depth. At 912, the ship Made, they made like a routine check and the Skylark's log said that there was a satisfactory underwater telephone check. The time of the final message from the Thresher was not record, like recorded, but the Thresher did report 
half position up angle, attempting to blow up. Like as though trying to come Yeah, up. they were going to resurface now. There are also reports of the Skylark's crew remembering the message differently, though, as experiencing minor problem, have positive angle, attempting to blow, along with experiencing minor difficulty, have positive up angle, attempting to blow will keep you informed. So they don't even know what the last message after 9.12 was because it wasn't recorded. Oh, boy. At 9.14... The Skylark requested that the Thresher give her course and bearing, but they got no reply. The Skylark followed up, but still they received no response. At 9.17, a scrambled message that ended with the words test step was received from the submarine, and seconds later the Skylark's commanding officer said he heard what sounded like a ship breaking up, like an entire compartment collapsing. That's some horror stuff right there. Well, that's the like thing the kind, is, you know how when you're playing a game and you get like the audio logs or whatever, you can hear the stuff happening in the background? Yeah. Oh. But the thing is, it's extra sad because they were literally right there with a rescue ship that could have rescued them if it didn't happen so fast. Like whatever happened to them happened so quickly that they couldn't even be saved. And everything was going well. It happened within a matter of like minutes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Because wait, yeah, at 9.12, they were fine. But by 9.17, they got their last message and they were crumpling. Like that is five That's minutes. Sudden, well, yeah, because when you're talking about compression at that level, like if it hits, if all of a sudden, it's not like it's a slow process of like, oh, this is a slow creaking. Like you could hear it and then all of a sudden it could occur at once. I know, but they didn't seem that worried because he was like, you know, minor problem, experiencing minor problem. If that is the message that they said. What minor problem would cause the entire thing to collapse in five minutes? So that's really, you know what I mean? It's one of those eerie events. Yeah. So due to this, the Skylark started signaling for the sub to surface by dropping grenades, which is their, um, that's what they do. If they're not getting response, they just start dropping grenades so the submarine can see it and know that they're trying to communicate. Yes. When offshore command was informed of the situation, a large search began for the sub, but to no avail. The Thresher had sunk in 8,400 feet of water. Which is like five times what its maximum depth was supposed to be in the first place. So the search for the Thresher involved ships with sonar and cameras, Geiger counters, and an old submarine was even sunk in order to study this pattern of an object in this area. So they got like this old thing, they were like junk, and they sank it just to see how it would sink so they could know where to possibly look for it. Because they're going to track it from like the currents and everything to see where is this thing going. So the Triest 2, which was a deep diving research bath escape, was used in order to locate the Thresher. And on June 27th, the debris field of the Thresher was located. The Triest 2 dived that debris field in 1964, 1967, 1977, and 1979. So it wasn't just doing it like that one time. Like it was going back and checking the debris multiple times over multiple years trying to piece all the stuff together. Well, were they able to determine like what caused it to sink? The thresher? Well, a bunch of theories. It it was completely destroyed. There's no way to know. And it happened so quickly. They didn't even record that one message. So they're not even sure if they said experiencing minor problem or if they didn't. Because all the people are remembering it differently. They don't really know exactly what was said. And they didn't record it at all. Weird. So what caused the Thresher to sink? 
The Navy's Court of Inquiry released a public statement saying that a flooding in the engine room is believed to be the most likely cause of their demise. They said that a piping system failure more than likely occurred in the saltwater system of the thrasher, leading to flooding, which may have caused electrical issues and subsequent loss of power. However, the statement also said that it would be impossible to get a better understanding of what actually happened, again, due to the submarine being... Yeah, and when it's lost at that point and being literally torn apart, you can't... It's not like you can haul the whole thing up and then look at its internal components. So according to the U.S. Naval Institute, like the article I was reading, the final message experiencing minor problem, it's not a message that would be sent in the case of a leaking pipe that was causing flooding. Even flooding through a half-inch pipe would not be minor as the noise and powerful spray would have had the sub in chaos. A leaking pipe between two and five inches in diameter would have had water rushing into the sub with a velocity of 1,800 miles per hour at a depth of 1,300 feet. 1,800 miles per hour. That is some intense. The, like, the noise. The pressure on that would be incredible. That's like, hold on, what, is the, what would that be like PSI-wise? Like, you know how they can do the stuff to cut metal and everything with water? What would that be? I'm not no blank on it. But that is some intense pressure that would rip a person apart. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective Perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. So the final message, ending with the words test step, may have been part of a message that said exceeding test step, but there's no way for us to know for sure. The U.S. Navy designed subs to be able to withstand one and a half times the pressure of their designed test step. Therefore, the thresher may have actually collapsed at 1950 feet which means that the extra 600 feet from test step to collapse step may have taken five minutes for the sub to get to. Well, then, yeah, that's one of the other things. That, and that's a confusing Maybe part. their comms were cut. True. Or maybe the sensors were off so that they ended up going lower than they actually intended to. But that, even know. then, that seems like a really big gap to fall below. Well, like, no, no, no. It's saying that they would have run into issue. And then 
at test step. Mm-hmm. And then they would have taken another five minutes to fall to their maximum debt, to exceed their test step. Yes. So as the sub approached collapse step, the pipes would have broken, blasting water into electrical systems and preventing the men from doing anything that could save them. The sub more than likely imploded. The final message that ended in test step, the reason why they think it said exceeding test step, is because if they were sinking like that, they wouldn't have been, been able to call. They would have had no communication. Hence and, the whole garbled message. Right. So, you know, there were theories that the sub may have filled with water, but what is more likely is the sub would have imploded way before the entire thing was full of water because the water into the sub would have caused it to sink faster, faster and which would sink have, more. Yeah, it would have sped up the whole implosion process. Oh. So what caused the thrasher to sink? The Navy's Court of Inquiry released a public statement saying that a flooding in the engine room is believed to be the most likely cause of the thrasher's demise. They said that a piping system failure more than likely occurred in the saltwater system of the thrasher, leading to flooding, which may have caused electrical issues and subsequent loss of power. However, the statement also said that it would be impossible to get a better understanding of what actually happened due to the submarine being lost. It's just impossible to know what happens once they're sunk. According to USNI, the U.S. Naval Institute, the final message experiencing minor problem is not a message that would be sent in the case of a leaking pipe that was causing flooding. Even flooding through a half-inch pipe would not be minor as the noise and powerful spray would have the submarine in chaos. A leaking pipe between two and five inches in diameter would have had water rushing into the sub with a velocity of 1,800 miles per hour at a depth of 1,300 feet. So whatever the minor problem that the Thresher experienced, it was enough that the commanding officer of the Thresher to surface, blowing ballast. The USS Thresher was one of the worst submarine disasters in history, with all 129 men on board perishing. Damn. That is, that is some awful shit here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't typically do nice stuff in episodes no, and I'll say this. So it's like submarines are obviously one of the most important inventions, arguably, ever. Whether you're talking about a nuclear submarine, whether you're talking about just something that is used for general warfare, etc. The problem with submarines is though that they are incredibly useful. Simultaneously, their history, unless, you know, it like for d- during peacetime, obviously, there's way less casualties, but disasters can still occur. You're going to have more of a disaster if a major problem breaks out in a submarine versus if you're a, you know, surface ship, like a little destroyer or something, of course. And the big thing is they had ridiculously high casualty rates in pretty much any kind of war that you would be in. The, the Germans, as an example, like going back into World War One, the casualty rate of of submarines once they could actually be attacked, because at first they were almost untouchable. And then afterwards, oh, they were getting massacre massively touchable yeah though then they became massively touchable yes yeah because the tech hadn't gotten good enough i guess i don't even know how i'd begin to phrase this but those old hybrid diesel engines and are like the electric engines and everything that they would utilize yeah they could only be underwater for like one and a half two hours max so somebody messaged oh my gosh have you ever read Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea by jules verne keep in mind Keep in mind, that book changed my life. The reason why I'm so freaking obsessed with the ocean is because it was my favorite book and I would reread it, reread it. And I think it was The Mysterious Island, whatever the like, it was not a sequel, but whatever the next book was, um, I was obsessed, okay? And I 
that's what started this. But his ship was all the way back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it wasn't real. I, no, it I like to real, think it was, it was real. Because it was like the... I it, like to think it was real. In my head, it was real. Well, because it was like an imagination of future tech. Like, do you remember the... Um, I mean, the, the Disney version of something like that is, is basically Atlantis, right? That one room it. where you could see everything in the book. Oh my gosh, I dream of it to yeah. this day. Yeah. And even if you remember when you watched Atlantis with me, where it's like it's this submarine, but it's not just like a submarine. It's like it has this gigantic glass bulb that you yeah. can see out everything. Which would be like, that really would hard to do yeah, because you'd have to like double paint and... Would the, would the plane more than just double painting. Well, the way we protect planes work for submarines. I'm pretty sure it does have to because that's what we do with the hull and then there's the gap. Mm-hmm. There would have to be way more than that, though. I think but then triple, what type of quintuple. glass would we use? Whew, there's a know. lot. There's a See, let's, let's work on submarines, guys. Guys, I think it's time we take submarines to the next level so I can casually, you know how people are going on like uh, three-year cruises? I'll go on a three-year submarine cruise. Oh, my God, that sounds so fun. I'm just imagining that scene where they all collapsed and it's like, all right, sound off. Who's not dead? <laughs> and then, unfortunately, in this case, with the USS Thresher, it was everyone. Oh, shit. You can't say that. Too soon. Uh, too the soon. The 60s were just soon? the other day. Those people are probably still not like the people on the ship. But Come on. Fair too enough. Too soon. Anyway, let's talk about something happier, guys. I don't want to leave you you were going to talk about the squalus, right? The rescue that it actually did do? Yep. So I'm going to tell one more story. And I wrote in my notes, everyone lives. Because I, I was like, of course they rescued everyone. Um, once I finished writing it, I realized they rescued some. But still, it's a happy story because some is better than none. Anyway, moving on. Especially um, compares to 129 dead. That is true. So the USS Squalus was an American Sargo-class submarine. The Sargo-class submarines were some of the first U.S. subs to be sent into action after the attack on Pearl Harbor. They were subs that were built between 1937 and 1939, and they had a top speed of 21 knots and an average range of 11,000 miles. So these are old school. Oh, yeah. On May 23rd, 1939, the Squalus was participating in trainings and underwater maneuvers off the coast of New Hampshire. There were no indications of any issues and the sub had completed numerous successful dives before. It had a crew of 56 officers and sailors, plus three civilian technicians. At 7.40 a.m. on May 23rd, the Squalus started a routine dive. But within minutes, it started taking on water and catastrophic flooding of the engine rooms. Oh, no. The cruise compartment and the torpedo room began due to a faulty main induction valve that failed to close properly. The main induction valve, it basically allows air to enter for diesel engine operations. And I didn't know diesel engines were used that much. Yeah. I mean, that's what they would have to use in the beginning here. I mean, what what do you think they were using prior to nuclear reactors and everything that they would have? Diesel was one of the most reliable things that you could utilize. It's really fast. Oh, no. You're thinking of the, uh, the 1800 submarines where they had that hand crank that they would use. Did they actually? Because I was bullshitting. No, 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 like Gabby, the the um the CSS uh, Humphrey, like the uh, th- yes, it was, yes, it was. They built submarines back in the day, like they were bad. People died. Do, do you know how many people died in the CSS Humphrey? It it sank three times, killing all of its crew. 
three separate times all the crew died or just one time i think it was actually two times that happened and the third time didn't work it either sank three times and all of them died or it sank two times and all of them died before it finally got into action and then upon it actually being used then it, it died god and people still were like we should fuck around with submarines that's that's crazy <laughs> we never learned i did this in the whole youtube video actually on the history of subs and how they changed war sometimes i watch your videos sometimes i don't fair enough <laughs> i love you so much i love you so much but i listen to you talk all day i feel like i shouldn't have to watch your videos right, well then you talk to me what about the squalus what, what happened here then right so this flooding led to the subs sinking stern first into 240 feet and resting on the seafloor. They were lucky. It wasn't 10,000. Oh, God, no. They would have crumpled instantly. So attempts to surface were all unsuccessful. The crew immediately released a marker buoy to the surface, and the survivors attempted to signal nearby ships by means of flares and smoke bombs. Now, I say survivors because this crew was originally 56 men. However, 24 officers and sailors, as well as two of the civilians, drowned in the flooded compartments because they got trapped. Oh, man. The remaining 33 men on board were still alive in the unflooded compartments at the front. So luckily for them, the USS Sculpin was nearby and it was alerted that the Squalus was missing. They began searching and by afternoon, the marker buoy that was released was located. Squalus was relocated. A they were located a few hours later, utilizing sonar and a drag hook that was being pulled by a naval shipyard tugboat called the Pinacook which is a fun name to say. That is a fun name to say. The reason why they had to use sonar and a drag hook is the Squalus, the, once they released the buoy, it um, accidentally severed their communication lines and oh, they couldn't no. call them to be like, hey, where, where are you? So it took them a little bit to figure that out. Upon finding the craft, the Coast Guard ordered all available units to the scene. And guys, <laughs> this is going to be really embarrassing for me because I think, well, we were falling asleep. It was like 1 a.m. And I looked over at Steve and I was like, hey, who's going to tell me the Coast Guard was part of the Navy? I was so confused when you looked over like, yes, it's 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 part of the, yeah, it's, it's in the military. What do you mean? I just thought there were sea police. I thought there were some little dudes on boats with guns chilling. I didn't know they were military. They look so happy. Have you ever seen a sad Coast Guard person? All the other military branches, unhinged. No offense, you guys. I love you. Thank you for your service. But you know what I'm saying. Oh. Coast Guard buddies, though, in their little white outfit, please. <laughs> I, I, I thought they were cops. In their little white No, Gabby. They look actually, so much less. I think it's the fresh ocean air. Listen, on some of the major coastal um, like cities, right, in Florida especially, there are police forces within the city that they, they do operate boats as well. I know, but I've met Coast Guard people, and they don't give military. They give, like, guy in a fancy suit having a nice day on a boat. You know what I mean? Minus like a little drinky drink. They're vibing. <laughs> <laughs> they just seem so much happier. I, I did not put it together. I'm so sorry. But um, nobody told me that. And I feel like I learned a lot. Anyway, the first boat to arrive was CG991. And guys, there's going to be like a lot more boats, but they're all like letters and numbers. And they didn't do anything as crazy as these. So I just named the important ones. And this was a powerful X-Rum runner which had a lot of speed and it brought out the Navy deep sea divers that were at the Naval shipyard. They brought two divers, two dive tenders, two mechanics and their diving equipment. Over the course of the evening, many more boats would arrive at the scene and by late evening, patrol boat CG-409 arrived 
And this one carried key personnel and equipment from the Navy's experimental diving unit. So for the rescue, the only thing that they had at their disposal to perform a successful rescue was the newly developed and never used McCann Submarine Rescue Chamber or the SRC. So (laughs) they were so freaking lucky that they actually went forward with the development of this chamber. Because let me just tell you a little side note about them. They were first invented when the U.S. Well, the idea was, you know, invented in someone's head when the USS S-51 was lost in a collision. A lieutenant commander by the name of Charles Momsen proposed the use of a diving bell for submarine rescues. According to the Naval Undersea Museum, the chamber used in the Squalus rescue, like how it worked, is the chamber attached to the sub's escape hatch and the lower compartment of the chamber is cleared of water by blowing it into the chamber's ballast tank. Once the pressurized air in the lower chamber is released into the upper compartment and vented to the surface, the chamber and the submarine are then at an equal pressure. The hatch can be opened and the trapped submarines can enter the rescue chamber for transport to the surface. Yeah, that seems so like it's, it's a completely good idea. Transfer under pressure. Yeah. But here's the thing with that chamber. So the Charles Momsen guy, so one ship sank, a bunch of people died. He was like, hey guys, I think we need to make some sort of rescue chamber for situations like this. He sends it into like, you know, the people who have to approve it. And they're like, oh yeah, it's such a good idea. Let's table that. Guess what fucking happens? Yeah, of course Next that ship, happens. Next ship collides, couldn't save them. He was, th- all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, we really got to get a work, we, we got to get a work on this. Like, bro, you waited for all of these people to die when you could have just built the damn box. What, you mean something in bureaucracy prioritized not people's lives? I was fucking pissed. I was, I was like, damn. They really said, oh, it's important, but not that important. Some fucking bullshit. Sorry for my language. Absolutely. (laughs) So back to the rescue. The submarine rescue chamber had two operators. They descended to the escape hatch and attached to the sub as described above. A total of four trips over 14 hours were taken in order to rescue all 33 survivors, with a fifth trip being made in order to verify that there were no survivors in the flooded compartments. So the interesting thing is they were just at 240 feet but I did see that it was hard for people to dive to them because of, you know, the bends like before or nitrogen. Also, they had to have um, Heliox, which was newly invented in this yeah. time. And I talked about Heliox in my last episode with helium and oxygen uh, because you had to you can't just breathe air because nitrogen will give you nitrogen narcosis. So they can only go down there for like 20 minutes or so before they started getting affected by nitrogen narcosis. So it all, it just made, it was a lot harder. Like the whole rescue was made so much harder by that fact that they were down deep enough to actually be, you know, fucked over by their depth. Oh, so, absolutely. No, and it makes total sense here. Cause what was the, um, what was the depth that you needed that past what was it 250 feet? I'm not sure. Because that is still actually even a very new thing for subs. Because do you know what the depth was on average that a World War One sub could reach? A hundred feet. Actually, pretty close. A hundred and like sixty or so. Like that's typically where it was. Meaning that they, they technically just, didn't need it at that point for Heliox and other stuff. Did they just put their least favorite people on these things? Because I would. You couldn't pay me to get on a World War One ship. Oh my god! With the sheer um, what is the term? Uh, not not maintenance. It was in not, not infallibility because infallibility means it can use it, it cannot actually 
be ruined. Um, it was very sensitive, okay? These things could go wrong very, very quickly. The machinery was not the best. So yes, a World War I sub, though a marvel of technology, was simultaneously a freaking death trap. Huh. Well, the salvage of the Squillus was one of the most challenging diving operations ever carried out by the Navy. It involved a lot of trial and error, and it took four months and five separate attempts. The Squillus was eventually rescued, however, and it was repaired and recommissioned as the USS Sailfish, which went Amazing on. Amazing naming. Amazing. I, know. I heard this name and I was like, I mean, neither of these two is that impressive, but go off. Um, and the USS Sailfish went on to have a successful World War II career. So they got that bitch up and back out there. They were like, we're not letting all this good equipment no. go to waste. That was actually a whole bunch of the ships that ended up being destroyed in Pearl Harbor. Like they were sunk. Ah, we're going to fucking refloat them. That is just bad. Uh, and a bad omen. You can't put people on there. People died. Oh, yeah. Guess what? A hell of a lot more we're about to. It was World War II. Okay. I mean, thanks for bringing up vibes. As though nothing in this <laughs> okay. episode already okay. did. <laughs> okay, fair. If anything is going down, it's those subs. Oh, my God. Too soon. <laughs> I'm never going to ask you to be a guest on a podcast ever again. Damn. <laughs> Damn. Okay, guys, that is the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please let us know what other episodes you'd like to hear. Reach out to us on Instagram at Mystery of Everything Pod. And make sure to check out the first episode of Submarine Disasters on the History of Everything podcast. Goodbye, everyone. And thank you so much for listening. And Steve, thank you for being here, even though you keep making jokes that are too soon. Honestly, I'm not even meaning to make jokes with a number it's of those. Just it just, you, right? yeah, they just end up coming to me immediately I know. at the moment. I'm sorry. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>